0: I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Today, I'm joined again by my colleague, John Michael Seibler. Welcome back.
1: Thanks, Elizabeth. This week, we're recapping a few oral arguments, and Elizabeth chats with the infamous John (laughs) Yu.
0: Infamous indeed. The Supreme Court is officially back. Before we get into the orders and arguments from this week, here's a brief update on the Kavanaugh Confirmation Circus. Since our last episode, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to report Kavanaugh out of committee by a vote of 11 to 10. Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona conditioned his support on the FBI reopening its background investigation. The FBI has now concluded the investigation, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell filed cloture setting, up, uh, setting the stage for a vote in the coming days. So perhaps by our next episode, this saga will have come to its conclusion. But moving on to uh, to the Supreme Court, what's, what's happening?
1: Yeah, on Monday, the court issued its orders from the long conference, including 65 pages of denials. It also granted the Solicitor General's motions for divided argument in several cases coming up and called for the SG to file a brief expressing the views of the United States in a number of cases.
0: There were no new grants, but I, I suppose we could get some next week or the week after that. So turning to this week's oral arguments, the court kicked off the week with the dusky gopher frog, J.M., what were some of the highlights from that argument?
1: Sure. So we've discussed this case before, and again, it involves the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's designation of privately owned property in Louisiana as the critical habitat of the dusky gopher frog, which happens to live uh, across several rivers and highways 50 miles away (laughs) in Mississippi and is nowhere to be seen in Louisiana on this land. Uh, There were really two questions involved here. The first is just, How far can the agency go in determining critical habitat of species? And the second was, are those designations, or at least as part of them, is the agency's decision not to exclude private property from critical habitat designations, based at least in part on an economic analysis that they have to do, subject to judicial review. So on that judicial review question, Justice Gorsuch was really the only one who showed any real interest in this. He kind of dug into it a bit, uh, but that was really kind of passed over. The first question took up the vast majority of the argument, and it seemed like there would be a clear 4-4 ideological split here with Breyer very much in the middle. Uh, So Tim Bishop argued first for Weyerhauser, and it seemed like Breyer was pretty hostile, very much questioning their Uh, argument about what is a critical habitat, where they were saying that, you know, essentially a species has to be able to survive there at some point. And Barr was saying, well, okay, what's the limiting principle here? Uh, Could we drain the swamp and make that a critical (laughs) habitat? He kept using this drain the swamp. That was like his catchphrase
0: for the argument, Catchphrase,
1: right. right. And then when the government got up to argue, uh, they didn't really have a limiting principle either on what counts as critical habitat. And Roberts asked at one point, well, uh, could you just build giant greenhouses in Alaska and let the frogs live there? And <laughs> Breyer jumped on that, too. So he was really uh, not content with either with either side, it seemed. So it looks like a toss-up.
0: Yeah, we'll have to see what happens there. The court also heard Gundy versus United States. This is the non-delegation doctrine case dealing with the Sex Offender Registration and Notification Act. So as we discussed last week, Sorna delegates to the attorney general the authority to decide whether and how the law's requirements uh, – Uh, registration requirements apply to sex offenders whose crimes occurred before Sorna became law in 2006. So at the oral argument, uh, Justices Kagan, Breyer, and Sotomayor were all very skeptical of the petitioner's arguments. Uh, Justice Breyer was particularly concerned about how this could impact um, all sorts of other uh, delegations of authority by Congress. And uh, on the other side of the ledger, though, Justices Ginsburg and Gorsuch were troubled by the government's position. Uh, So Gorsuch said, um, you know, this statutory section dealing with pre-enforcement unambiguously says that the attorney general decides whether, how, when and who, even who the law applies to. Uh, so and he said, don't um, you don't even know if you're going to be subject to this law. He said, I'm trying I'm having trouble uh, trying to think of another delegation in which this court has ever allowed the chief prosecutor of the United States to to write the criminal law for those he's going to prosecute. And he went on to say, you know, last term we had a case where we said that, you know, vague criminal laws must be stricken. And what's vaguer than a blank check to the attorney general to determine who he's going to, to prosecute? And then Justice Ginsburg uh, chimed in and said, you know, to the uh, federal public defender, Sarah Baumgardle. So so that's your argument. And she quipped, well, I'll cede my time. Uh, Justice <laughs> Justice Ginsburg, uh, Gorsuch has, has uh, you know, covered the water for what I was going to argue. Um so Chief Justice Roberts was, uh, you know, it, he was skeptical of both sides, it seemed. And he asked, you know, if Congress gave the ator- uh, attorney general the ability to exempt pre-act offenders, uh, if it wasn't feasible to apply the requirement, uh, the registration requirements to them, would that be OK? And Gardle said, well, that would be fine because Congress would be making the decision there. And that would be more like traditional prosecutorial discretion. Uh, you know, Roberts pointed out that, you know, this this delegation, it's not a delegation to create new crimes. It's just to uh, apply the, the criminal law that that uh, that's on the books uh, to preact offenders. So then Principal Deputy Solicitor General Jeff Wall, he got up to the podium arguing for the government. And he said that this delegation is no different from, you know, many others such as specifying, you know, whether the drug you're holding is lawful, whether the, you know, a bridge has to be taken down, whether you can graze on public lands. And Chief Justice Roberts uh, didn't like the bridge comparison. He jumped in and he said, you know, the executive branch could specify what type of bridge needs to be, you know, what weight. But it's a different thing when the attorney general says, here's the law that covers bridges, and I get to decide whether it governs at all in a particular area. So Jeff Wall, the principal deputy solicitor general, he wrapped up his argument pointing out that currently 18 jurisdictions have substantially implemented SORNA, but there are still 32 states that aren't there yet. So his concern is that if the court strikes down this provision, more than half the country will become, in his words, a sex offender registration free zone. Uh, and there will no longer be a duty to register um, uh, pre, pre-act offenders. So then uh, Sarah Baumgartle got back up to the podium for her rebuttal. And she said, you know, every state has a registry of its own. And those will continue to exist regardless of what happens with Sorna. She emphasized the special nature of this delegation. It's not licensing. It's not civil rulemaking. This is retroactive application of criminal Law penalties that affect uh, individual liberty interest in the most profound way, as she put it, and she said, "You know, this is an area where the Constitution specifies that there must be a division between the lawmaker and between the executive." So I think this is, you know, like the Weyerhaeuser case. This is a, this is one where it, it's it's not looking it's not looking great for the eight member court. Uh, it, it could end up being, uh, you know, being a tied vote in the end. And so then um, last up, the court also heard Nick versus Township of Scott, Pennsylvania. And this is the case where private property owners in Pennsylvania are being forced to open up their land to the public if township enforcement agents decide that there's a cemetery on the land. Uh, so, so the the real legal issue in the case is, is whether the court will overturn this 1980s era uh, Williamson County case, which requires state court litigation exhaustion before you can come into uh, federal court on on a takings claim. And, uh, you know, some of the issues that came up, Justice Kagan said, you know, does a violation occur before the state denies compensation? Because there uh, there's a di- dispute here about whether this is even a taking. So, um, you know, what what do we do about that? And, you know, she says the government hasn't even admitted liability here. Uh, Justice Ro- uh, Chief Justice Roberts seemed concerned about. You know, if they get rid of the state court uh, exhaustion uh, requirement or litigation requirement, that that could potentially be overburdening to the federal district courts. He was very concerned about that. Justice Alito, um, he mentioned, you know, we're, we're talking about a Section 1983 claim, uh, you know, where you have a deprivation of civil rights. Uh, and he says, it, it, you know, in, in other contexts with 1983 claims, there is no state exhaustion requirement. So why require one in the takings context? Uh, and Justice Justice Breyer, he seemed very concerned about Stare Decisis, the fact that this was a 30 plus year old decision. And you know his catchphrase for this argument was, "We should let sleeping dogs lie." And he said that you know several times. Um, but he also at, uh, on the on the same uh, at the same time he he didn't seem to like the idea that um, you know if a case starts in state court and it's then removed to federal court and then the, the government can move to dismiss the case, that seems unfair to uh, to property owners. So, you know, this, again, this seems like another one where it's, it, it really uh, could have come down to, to one justice, uh, but with, with an eight-member court, um, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see what happens.
1: Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting that we start the term with a case about land with frogs that aren't there, a case <laughs> about land with gravestones that aren't there, a statute <laughs> with an intelligible principle that isn't there, yeah. oh, wow, we have a court with a ninth member. That's not there.
0: there. (laughs) Yeah. But anyway, I recently spoke with John Yoo. John Yoo is a professor at Berkeley Law and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, John.
2: Thanks, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me.
0: So before we dig into your career, I'd like to talk about your childhood a little bit. You were born in South Korea and you came to this country as a child and you grew up in Philadelphia. Can you talk a little bit about how your experience as an immigrant has shaped your political views and your views on the law?
2: Well, we, we moved to America because we like beer.
0: No, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs>
2: uh, so my family emigrated uh, in the first big wave of immigration after the 1965 Immigration Act, like a lot of Asians. Uh, and I would probably say I became conservative because I grew up in the time of Carter and Reagan. And conservatives define themselves, I think, as being in favor of three things— anti-communism, free markets, and traditional morality, I guess you put it, or family values, they say today. And mm-hmm. so I think uh, that's very true of a lot of immigrants. I think when a lot of immigrants come to the United States, no matter where they come from, they tend to be in favor of vigorous American foreign policy and light government regulation and free markets. And they tend to, I think, be relatively conservative on social values.
0: So you've had quite a career, clerking for Justice Thomas, teaching at uh, schools around the world, working in the Senate, serving in the Justice Department during a very difficult period for our country, and uh, most importantly, doing a podcast with Richard Epstein.
2: That's no easy task, just <laughs> getting him to stop talking.
0: So what has been your favorite position throughout your career?
2: Oh, I always tell the students and uh, people I uh, you know, run into in their 20s, the best job I ever had was working on the Hill. I mm-hmm. loved working in the Senate. It's so much fun because you spend most of your time trying to prevent other people from doing things. <laughs> There's no more fun in the world than scheming and plotting <laughs> to try to stop things from just making things not happen. <laughs>
0: That's great. <laughs> so speaking of your time on the Hill, you uh, you worked for Senator Orrin Hatch, and yes. he is retiring soon. So tell me about some of your memories for, for working for Senator Hatch.
2: Oh, I... I you know, I couldn't have had a better guy to work for, you know, because I knew Senator Hatch was so nice. Uh, no matter what I did, he would never fire me. <laughs> but he's a, he was a wonderful guy. You know, the, one thing about Senator Hatch, you know, I to tell stories for hours about him, but one thing about him there, I think a lot of senators uh, are very interested in popularity. I mean, they should be because they have to get reelected. Um, they like to see their good press. There aren't a lot of senators who will, I, th- I think, of will go to the Met or something, someone, or a principal, and Senator Hatch would. So uh, conservatives, I think, rightly should applaud him for his defense of Robert Bork, mm-hmm. for his uh, defense of Justice Scalia, for getting Justice Thomas confirmed, uh, Rehnquist, Robert We run down the list of great conservative justices uh, You know, the last 30 years, and Senator Hatch was their main defender. Mm-hmm. And I, oftentimes, when it wasn't popular to be— uh, say, a defender of uh, Clarence Thomas or a Scalia or a Rehnquist, but he really stood up for them. There aren't a lot of senators who will go all the way, like I said, go to the Met to defend somebody like he would.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it's hard to think of, outside of a president, an individual who's had more of an impact on on shaping our courts uh, than Senator Hatch and his his tenure in the Senate, which has been really incredible. So let's continue with your career. So then in the early 2000s, you went into the Bush administration and since then, you've amassed quite a following. You might call them a fan club. Really? <laughs> <laughs> There's oh, even that's... the guy who follows you around sometimes. Oh, that fan the, club!
2: Uh, oh, you're talking about that? Those people?
0: Yeah, the 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 guy with the uh, the oversized paper mache of your head. Um, yeah, I'm
2: worried about him. Yeah. Whoa, he's got this like basically a six foot high paper mache head of me. You know, and they bring it out one day a year. Uh huh. So I want to know. What is he doing with it the other 364 days? Like, I think it's. I'm worried that it's like in his bedroom and he's sitting there making sure it's clean and polished and staring working on. it. Yeah, staring at me. I mean, what is a guy who? I mean, who has the time to make that? But then, what does he do with it all? I mean, it looks pretty good every time he brings it out. I mean, I think it's kind of racist the way he's. John, I mean, I find, you know, he, he ought to go, he might, might have to go through sensitivity training if they ever caught <laughs> him with it on campus.
0: Um, so uh, so I read an article about a group protesting, you know, your teaching at Berkeley uh, several years ago, and mm-hmm. you were quoted in the article, and I, I just loved your response. You said, everyone needs a hobby. For denizens of Berkeley, protesting makes a neat distraction from working. So how have you maintained such a positive attitude in, in the face of you know, people protesting your your ability to work.
2: Also, you got to understand, uh, you know, Berkeley protesters they tend to be older. Some of them seem to still. They sometimes I think they think they're protesting the Vietnam War. <laughs> so
0: I'm like, I I think not, that ended. <laughs> yeah, well, you never not
2: for these people. <laughs> you know, I, I, I sometimes I think they come out and protest me. Uh, you know, if it's activity hour at the Senior Citizen Center and they can get off campus, but I I um. I don't know. I, I I generally have an optimistic outlook on things, as they said on Saturday Night Live. I'm a half keg is full kind of guy. <laughs> no, I, I really, I really, um, I I think it's all part of the you know wild nature of universities. One mm-hmm. and two, I I my, my whole career, you know, since you're going through my career, I just think about here for a second. I have always tended to be in liberal institutions and surrounded by liberals. And so I'm kind of used to being you know, surrounded <laughs> by the misguided and uh, overeducated. Uh, so I, I tend to like being in those environments. So actually, the weirdest time was when I was working in the Bush administration and sort of everyone agreed on conservative things. I found mm-hmm. it really odd. So, I, kinda, so I'm kinda used, I guess I'm used to always being surrounded by liberals who disagree with me.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about the judges that you've clerked for, starting mm-hmm. with uh, Judge Lawrence Silberman at the D.C. Circuit. Mm-hmm. Tell me what he's like and um, some of your favorite memories from from clerking for him.
2: Well, Judge Silberman is a tough guy. Um, He's like uh, all these other, uh, I call them Nixon retreads, like Dick Cheney, Rumsfeld. You know, all these guys come from this pivotal time in our history during uh, Watergate, just before, just after. And so they're very uh, attuned and sensitive to— uh, the balance of powers between the branches. You know, Silverman's great opinion was the lower court opinion in Morrison versus Olson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had uh, struck down the independent counsel law, which I think in the end was quite prophetic for the, the reasons they gave. Uh, so, th- clerking for Judge Silverman, uh, one, made me very tuned to the separation of powers. And then, number two, he was an ambassador and very interested in foreign policy. And I'm very interested in foreign policy. So, I like to think that my um, academic career. Uh, really has gone in the direction it has war powers treaties mm-hmm. and so on because of clerking for uh, Judge Silberman.
0: Do you have any funny stories about working for him?
2: Oh, I have too many. So
0: anything you can share? <laughs> uh, so
2: what people may not know, so Judge Silberman has a affinity for strange animal parts, and especially eating them. So <laughs> he actually believes me not to be fully Korean. Because I took him to a Korean restaurant and they had these things on you, even I don't eat. So he actually uh, ordered grilled cow heart to eat. Yeah. Oh,
0: goodness. Gross,
2: right? So, you know, and, he, and I was like, Judge, the reason my family left Korea. So we wouldn't have to eat that crap anymore. <laughs> he loved that stuff. Yeah, he loves he's he because you know what? Because he was a young lawyer in Hawaii. Uh huh. So in Hawaii, they eat raw they eat raw sea urchins, sea they eat anything they can lay hands on in Hawaii, they will eat raw. So he loves that stuff. So that's my funny story. Is taking Judge Silverman around to the exotic eateries of Washington D.C.
0: So he has sort of an Anthony Bourdain taste in uh, in in food.
2: <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. So I, I, I uh, yeah. What's well, one of my goals in life was to try to find something that Mikey won't eat, but I couldn't find. <laughs> Haven't anything. found anything
0: yet. No. <laughs> uh, so then you went on to clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas. Hmm. Uh, what were some of the highlights of of that clerkship?
2: Well, it's interesting. Uh, I clerked for him, his fourth year on the court. So. The great part about clerking for Justice Thomas uh, at that time was that he was still confronting issues for the first time, still thinking out his judicial philosophy. So it was a great honor to be there with him when he was doing that. And the second thing is about the way he runs his chambers is he likes to decide cases by sitting down with his clerks and arguing the cases out. And so he— I tended to be the person who always would say, well, the framers must have thought this or the framers must have thought that. And so eventually he sort of made up this joke, I think. I think it was a joke that (laughs) I had some kind of secret wig that I was going to put on to commune with the framers right before every time we would talk about (laughs) every case because he thought I was just, you know, so wedded to not only just wedded to it, but also that I knew what the framers actually did think about every question. <laughs> that was wonderful. It was wonderful. I couldn't have been more fortunate to clerk for two people who uh, not only were just nice. I mean, everyone says their judge is nice. Do you ever run the program that says my judge was so mean? I hated working for them. No, they. Everyone <laughs> says yet. their judge is nice. Yeah. Uh, but I actually liked that they were both challenging intellectually. Not I, nice or not, I could care less actually. But they were both uh, intellectually challenging judges to work for. So I really feel fortunate that that both experiences.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite Clarence Thomas? Oh, also, yeah,
2: driving around the, with the, so the Justice has this RV, mm-hmm. right? He has this. Um, it's the size of a bus. It's like uh It's like an eighteen wheeler, and he mm-hmm. drives around the country, sort of unannounced. So, uh, I was fortunate enough once to be on the bus with him, and so I learned all these things about RV culture that uh, <laughs> I really wish I didn't know. <laughs> so, yeah, one of the yeah one of the great things was just. And I think he loves the, um, you know, the anonymity of it, because mm-hmm. I think when you become a Supreme Court justice, now the justice is not like others who want to have documentaries made about them either, but you know you lose your I think they lose their privacy when mm-hmm. they go on the court. And so I think for him, it's a, it's, a, it's a great escape to drive around the country in this bus and you know not have to worry about who sees you, who doesn't see you, or people taking pictures when you get autographs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that was uh, you know, that was a real place. So I, you know, we stopped at. Uh, so I didn't, one thing I didn't know that he taught me about was there's like this alternative world of truckers and RVs and they have their own gas stations and their own like <laughs> places to eat at every uh, exit that I just hadn't paid attention to. And they're way better than what normal people get. It's so, like the gas is cheaper, the food's better. So now I always stop at these places, yeah. <laughs> these truck stops rather than the, you know, the ones that everyone else pulls over at on the interstate.
0: So uh, do you have a favorite opinion by Justice Thomas? Oh. Uh, it could be a dissent, concurrence. He's got some great dissents.
2: Yeah, he has a lot of great opinions. I mean, you know, for my own work, I, I, of course, like his opinions in the enemy combatant cases. Um, but I think the one that was most interesting was the Lopez case, which was the term I clerked for him. Mm-hmm. about trying to cabin the powers of the federal government and of uh, the Commerce Clause. Yeah, And I thought it was just, uh, I have always thought that, and I think that's probably the opinion of his that's most taught in law school is either his opinion mm-hmm. on that or his opinion in Adirant about affirmative mm-hmm. action. But the reason why the Commerce Clause case is so great is I think he made this excellent point, which is if the Commerce Clause were as broad as it's believed to be today, then why is there anything else in Article One, Section 8? Like, why why have a bankruptcy <laughs> yeah. power?
0: Yeah.
2: Or why have a, you know, a coinage power when the Commerce Clause is now read to be so broad? It just swe- So I, I like that textual argument that he made that I, seems obvious to us all now, but I think he was the first justice to make it.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a great opinion. So one of your former co-clerks, uh, Tom Thomas Lee, who's now a yeah, justice Tom. on the mm-hmm. Utah Supreme Court, he was on SCOTUS 101 last season. And he reminisced about playing habeas corpus, which is the law nerd version of horse on the basketball court with Justice Thomas. Uh And he mentioned how you were there and this led to an injury and possibly a ban on basketball in the Thomas house. What's your recollection of this?
2: Uh, Well, I think the FBI should be sent out to do a supplemental investigation (laughs) of the facts here because who knows what really happened. So I um, recall playing horse. Uh, so, you know, Tom, I don't know if you if you talk about it, Tom's a very competitive guy and he's a very good basketball player. Yeah. Yeah, he's really a good basketball player. And so Tom was trying to win. <laughs> I'm the kind of guy who's like first the boss to bounce, hit the top of the backboard and then fall. Like I've tried all these ridiculous, weird shots. So I did not cause any injury. Uh, Tom, however, you know, he's too good. He might have driven others to be com- too competitive for their own good and tried to hit shots they couldn't hit. I don't remember any ban. You know, it was, you know? so I think the justice actually snapped his Achilles tendon, Achilles tendon two terms earlier playing basketball with Laura Ingram. And I would be like, if I played one-on-one mm-hmm. basketball with Laura Ingram, I'd be happy if all I escaped with was a snap to yeah. Achilles tendon.
0: <laughs> well, maybe I'll have to see if she'll do the show and, and share uh, share what happened there. So we talked about your, your generally sunny disposition in the face of adversity. You might call it uh, living on the sunrise side of the mountain to steal a line from, from Judge Kavanaugh. Um, is this something that you think you learned from Justice Thomas, given everything he went through with his confirmation?
2: Uh, you know, I probably was like, it, like this before, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, seeing the way Justice Thomas— uh, has prevailed, I think, over his critics and those who tried to stop him to get on the bench. Uh, you, could under, you couldn't not have, a, <laughs> I think, a sunny disposition uh, watching, you know, admiring the way he himself conducts his, mm-hmm. himself. Uh, so I think yes, certainly an influence. Or as you said, all the people, you've mentioned Senator Hatch, you know, when he was fighting for all these nominees, he got terribly attacked. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, but so Senator Hatch is very optimist. You know, there's this weird um, sort of image in the media of conservatives as being dark and brooding uh, <laughs> because we all as conservatives, we all do believe life is nasty, brutish and short. Uh, so, but the, I, most of the conservative people I've worked for or uh, worked with. Yeah, haven't been that way. They do, I think tend, maybe it's because if life is nasty, brutish and short and we're around, we're very happy and lucky that we're still here <laughs> and get to lead such, I mean, my my personal is we're such, so lucky to live in the United States and to have this, uh, you know, the I think the greatest country in the history of the world and one that provides a safety and security for a lot of, uh, you know, billions of other people out uh, of the goodness of its heart has a flourishing economy. I think still great universities, I think, I would you would be happy if you lived now versus any other period in the history of the world. <laughs> Wouldn't you be happy? So that's why I'm optimistic, I yeah. suppose.
0: So speaking of contentious confirmations, mm-hmm. I know you've been following Judge Kavanaugh's uh, mm-hmm. the confirmation circus. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll put it that way. And I think that this has to be a new low for the Senate, this this process. Mm. Um, but this confirmation isn't. It's not happening in a vacuum. Hmm. There's a backdrop of decades of battles over judicial nominations, going back to Judge Bork and Justice Thomas. Do you have any thoughts on how we can right the ship and get back to a time when every vacancy wasn't treated like a four-alarm fire?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the optimist in me wishes that were true, that there could be a return to the way it was before 1987. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the realist in me (laughs) doesn't see how that will happen so there's, I think there's three things going on. Uh, one is it's the Supreme Court's fault. So this didn't happen before because the Supreme Court wasn't as important as it is now. Mm-hmm. So when you uh, turn to the courts to decide every important social issue from race to abortion to affirmative action to gay marriage and on and on and mm-hmm. on, the only way voters can affect those decisions is by affecting who's on the Supreme Court. So as the court has become politicized— So are the nominations. So it might be inevitable that Mm -hmm. this has happened and it may not be able to The second thing that's gone on is the Senate. The Senate has uh, really changed and the Senate has lost, in a way, has sort of lost control of the process. It's Mm -hmm. sort of become the arena for private groups. You know, I think there are private groups behind a lot of what's going on here with the Kavanaugh nomination. And the Senate has, you know, it doesn't, restore order because there's no party discipline like there used to be. And they're individual senators who just sort of freelancing because they're running for president. Mm -hmm. And so they're freelancing on uh, a lot of this. And so there's, I don't see how there's any way to stop that because I don't know if the parties are ever going to come back to the way they are before. And then I think the, I don't know, I think the, I mean, I think the third thing is American people are different. Like we now do care a lot more about, the character and background of people there used to be this separation between you know your view on policy and you know what kind of person you were mm-hmm. you know now we i think this is a triumph in a way of uh sort of left wing views of ideology looking at the world is now people and politics are the same thing you know so if you oppose a certain set of ideas now people try to destroy the person mm-hmm. or the messenger and i think that's that's always been present in politics, but now I think it's really come to the fore, and I don't see how we turn uh, turn back from that. On the other hand, let me just say, people, you know, politics have gone through times like this before, and sometimes they've changed uh, mm-hmm. back to, I think, a more responsible, uh, sort of responsible code of conduct. But right now, unless both sides uh, agree to stop, and the only way that's going to happen, I'm afraid, is if Republicans deter the Democrats from doing this ever again by doing the same thing, I don't see why anybody would stop this, what you might call race to the bottom.
0: Yeah. And I, I certainly hope Republicans wouldn't, wouldn't treat a, a future Democratic nominee. Oh, the that No, I think, the that's, that no, I think that's the only
2: way you will ever get them to stop doing this, I'm afraid.
0: Yeah. Well, on that cheery note, one final <laughs> question, something we ask all the guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about?
2: And you, and the answer can't be John Other than Marshall, John Marshall, too many people have said that.
0: <laughs> Unless you feel like Everyone, you have a unique response about John Marshall.
2: <laughs> no, everybody says John Marshall. <laughs> so any, any justice, not just a chief justice. So I, I, that's, I, I mean, don't a lot of people say uh, Holmes, I would think.
0: You know that's not not one that we hear a lot. Oh, really? Yeah. I really
2: find it interesting to talk to Oliver Wendell Holmes, mm-hmm. um, not just because of his uh, famous opinions that everyone in law school thinks are like his dissent in Lochner or his first. But you know, he's a lot of weird opinions too that would be really interesting. But I just think in terms of, uh, I, I I don't want, I wouldn't uh, here's So here's where I would be different. I wouldn't want to sit there and talk to any of these justices about their decisions on the court. I find mm-hmm. that, that would be boring. You know, that would, I mean, you already know what they think they wrote it out. So I think what would be interesting is people who had an interesting life. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, right, you know, wounded in the Civil War mm-hmm. and uh, serves so long that I think this is right, that Alger Hiss was his law clerk at the <laughs> very end of his life. Yeah. Think about that lifespan and what he saw witnessed. Uh, I would find it very – and also I think in many ways he was a great thinker in his own right and a great American, a great example of America. I think that would be really interesting to talk to Oliver Wendell Holmes as long as we don't have to talk about any of his opinions.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's great. Well, we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme trivia. Ah! Clarence Thomas edition. Bring it on. Are you ready?
2: To quote someone I once worked for.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, our wonderful interns from the, the Legal Center here at Heritage helped me come up with these. And most of the questions are based on this, uh, this silly book that I found called Secret Lives of the Supreme Court What Your Teachers Never Told You About America's Legendary Justices. Let me see this thing. Which is. Uh,
2: Who's the author? No one takes credit for this. No. Yeah. <laughs> There's an Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Drugs, adultery, bribery, homosexuality, corruption, and the Supreme Court. Yeah. That's what it says yep. in the subtitle.
0: <laughs> How could you
2: not buy that book? I just hope it has photos.
0: <laughs> not, not too many. Hmm. Okay. First question. Which NBA star did Justice Thomas invite to play See, on that, the highest court in the said, land? Can I
2: say that your interns totally miss us up? Because who do you think is the clerk who took said NBA player up to the court? It was me. I was the <laughs> one actually who took him on the tour of the court. It's Charles Barkley. That's right. Now, can I, this is another Thomas story. So Char, I'm from Philadelphia. Uh-huh. Charles Barkley is a 76er. So when I heard he was coming to the court, I was like, Justice, please, please, please let me take him on a tour of the court. Please, 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 please. <laughs> so he, the justice kindly said after he's done talking to Sir Charles we took, that was his nickname in the The NBA. Round Mound
0: of re, uh, Rebound. Rebound, yes. Yeah. That was
2: his nickname in college. And then in, in um, when he played for the Sixers, he was called Sir Charles. I don't know why Sir Charles. Why not? Anyway, so I got to, I took him on the tour. And it was great. I got a, We got a picture of him sitting in the Chief Justice's chair. At the, but I was like, we got to go up and go to the court. He could hit from everywhere. I mean, he was <laughs> a great, I mean, I guess when there's no one guarding you and you're an NBA player, <laughs> you hit 1,000%. He shot the ball. I was like, you know, and this was before there were smartphones. I have no photographic evidence of this.
0: <laughs> no proof he that could, it happened. He could
2: score from every place, every shot on the court. i never, it was amazing.
0: <laughs> I think he
2: would have dunked so hard on Tom Lee that the word Wilson would have imprinted on Tom Lee's forehead
0: <laughs> from the basketball. That's great. What what a great experience. I yeah, I, yeah. I mean,
2: I think I don't even need, I mean, like I, won, I still won that trivia question. Like
0: I should get five <laughs> questions, yes, yeah, five bonus extra points. credits for that. <laughs> All right, next question. Justice Thomas has famously criticized his alma mater Yale Law School. Can you describe any of the Yale memorabilia that he's had in his chambers over the years?
2: <laughs> I mean, this is like this is not trivia. I mean it's like I know so he used to have a bumper sticker uh-huh. in his office that said, Save America, close Yale Law School. So your interns probably don't even know that. So well, that so what we have
0: so. is that it said "Save America, bomb Yale Law." School. Oh
2: no, no, it says "Close Yale Law." Close Yale. School. Okay. Yeah, because he gave me one. I still, I still have it in my office.
0: <laughs> That's great. He also had a. But
2: after the Kavanaugh thing, I hear rumors that Yale is just going to self close.
0: Yeah, it might. <laughs> Actually, I think the
2: students have demanded to close Yale Law School. I hope they. I hope they uh, get a refund on all their tuition dollars.
0: <laughs> so apparently he he's also had a Yale sucks bumper sticker in his chambers at some point. Uh, and then of course um he had his his diploma. I'm not sure if this was in his chambers or not, but it had the 15 cent sticker on it for for some time.
2: No, I don't think the diploma is in his office, but I have seen it with the sticker. Yeah. Yeah, but that then I don't think that made it into the chambers. <laughs>
0: Okay, next question. So
2: I'm beating the interns here. You're, you're doing Both a great. Both times my answer was better than the intern answer.
0: <laughs> According to financial disclosure forms, what gift did Justice Thomas receive from Rush Limbaugh? Oh. Okay. And I don't know when this was, but.
2: Well, I think he performed Rush Limbaugh's wedding. Really? Yeah. So uh, what gift did he receive from Rush Limbaugh? That's a tough one. I have no idea.
0: Uh, so apparently $100 worth of cigars.
2: I was going to say cigars.
0: Yeah, a good a good, Damn. A good guess. Uh, yeah, but it was just be a guess. Some other things from uh, financial disclosure forms. He's also received $1,300 in Western attire, including a rawhide coat and a silver belt buckle. Oh, God. A Daytona 500 commemorative jacket. Ah, uh, yeah. And $1,200 worth of ties from an Omaha businessman uh, but something tells me it's not Warren Buffett. <laughs>
2: <laughs> or they're probably $1,200 dollars $1 ties that the justice probably likes wearing.
0: <laughs> OK, next question. And this might be apocryphal. Uh, maybe you know the, the answer here. Where was Justice Thomas when he learned he had been confirmed to the Supreme Court?
2: Well, according to his autobiography, I think he was taking a bath. And he said, "Whoop de damn do" or something like
0: that. <laughs> that's so right. He was
2: in his house.
0: That's right. He was in the tub, and Jenny reported the news. His wife, Jenny, reported the news to him, and he said, "Whoop de damn do." <laughs> I yeah.
2: think actually that's a. I don't think that's apocryphal. I think that's a true story.
0: It, yeah. It's. It yeah. sounded like it might not be uh, yeah. entirely true, but.
2: Oh no no! If it's, totally if it's in it. the
0: memoir, yeah, um, it's, in,
2: it's actually in his. I remember reading that in his book. Yeah. <laughs> Someone I remember a critic wrote a book review saying. Oh, that's so disrespectful of the court. They said, whoop-de-damn-do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, okay, final question. Mm-hmm. Justice Thomas is known for his silence on the bench. Uh, why doesn't he typically ask questions during oral argument?
2: Uh, so he's given a number of reasons uh, for this. Um, but I think now the the reason that he gave most recently in a public Forum was that he feels that oral argument has become so dominated by people who are uh, almost showing off that the council have almost no opportunity to make their own argument. And so the justice feels like the council have to, right, give 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 them a chance. Now, the other thing I would say is I think the justice. Prepares for oral arguments so much and has gone through so many rounds of discussion with clerks and others, other justices, that uh, i don't he I don't find a lot of the questions people ask during our oral argument ones that he hasn't already thought of and figured out the answer for himself.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I have seen different accounts of why he says uh, he wants to hear what the advocates have to say over the years. Uh, But in a speech at Hillsdale College in 2007, um, here's what he had to say. He said, my colleagues should shut up. Suppose you're uh, undergoing something very serious like surgery and the doctors started a practice of conducting seminars while in the operating room, debating each other about certain procedures and whether or not this procedure is this way or that way. You really didn't go in there to debate about gallbladder surgery. You actually went in to have a procedure done. We're judges, and this is the last court in a long line in our system. We're there to decide cases, not to engage in seminar discussions.
2: Which, yeah, I mean, I think I think that's he. I think he feels like oral argument is is no longer is no longer really about, say, what's like in the D.C. Circuit or lower courts where the judges are really trying to ask questions about something that's ambiguous or left unclear from the written briefs. Mm-hmm. And part of it is that the court gets the benefit of the best brief writing in the country. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think he thinks it's ter- it's become something else, you know, whether it's like justices who like to see their name in, pr- in the New York Times who are trying to get in a good quote, for example, <laughs> I won't name names, or it's are yeah, it's sort of indulging themselves, but it's not really related to that original function, which is leaving it for... These genuinely hard questions that are left open after you've read all the briefs.
0: Yeah, and imagine if if the court ever allowed cameras into the courtroom. I think that oh, it makes the, just so much worse The dynamic would get even war. worse.
2: But I don't. You're, I mean, you're uh, luckily too young, but you probably never saw oral argument. Uh, you know, in the Burger Court days, for example. <laughs> so in the Burger Court days, nobody asked questions. If you go back and look look at transcripts. You know, with these great justices, you know, mm-hmm. of the left, like Brennan or Marshall. Brennan Marshall they barely ever asked questions. Nobody made a I, I, I remember going to see an argument where the council would talk for like 10 minutes straight. No one would interrupt them.
0: It's Richard Epstein's dream. <laughs> 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 but it was really—I think it was when Scalia joined the court that it kind of—he uh, brought this sort of— um, hot style to to the argument. Yes, I
2: think Scalia's nature was that. And also I think I think Scalia said once that, um, you know, when he was at the court, you know, they when they get to conference, mm-hmm. you know, he was a junior justice. So he would speak last. And so he'd be ninth. Mm-hmm. And so the only way he could, he felt he could actually make known his views and uh, sort of engage the other justices was by oral argument.
0: That's really interesting. I haven't yeah. heard that before. That is a... It yeah. makes sense. Yeah, that is that could be an effective way. It might explain why Justice Gorsuch has been such a chatterbox. Uh, has he been? I haven't and, followed yeah, it he, this last Oh, two he's years. gotten a lot of flack from uh, you know from the left and the media because he asked too many questions.
2: Really? Yeah. So. Really, but then they <laughs> criticized Justice Thomas for yeah. not asking enough questions. Yeah, so you can't you know.
0: win. Yep. <laughs> well, you did You did excellent. You got four out of five. No,
2: no, no, no. no and uh, I, think I, get- I actually had the cigar one, but then I get – I'm the only one who's had extra credit. So great – I, I mean, it's like double my, my score should be doubled. I should get a multiplier.
0: So nine out of five. <laughs> yes, exactly. I
2: never win. I win with, I'm like the United States. I win with over-dominating military force.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me.
2: Okay. Thanks, Elizabeth.
0: Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening.
2: And
1: you can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can also email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.
0: You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery, sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.